Now reading God's word from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac. And Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, for one man... And him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for he, people who speak thus make it clear that they are not seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did bring him back. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. I read a striking quote this week from a Christian counselor who suffers from a progressive disease. And she writes, Many Christians are not comfortable with the reality of ongoing difficulty. Now I think I might modify that slightly to say that many people are not comfortable with the reality of ongoing difficulty, but I do believe that this is true of Christians that many of us are not comfortable with the reality of ongoing difficulty. And as I've thought about the lives of the people that we read about in Scripture, and especially the life of our Lord, these are lives, by and large, of ongoing difficulty. One of the features that we read about Abraham throughout the Scripture is, is that his faith is often tested. God called him to go from his homeland and his people to a place that he was, received, he was to receive his inheritance, not knowing where he was going. God made promises to him of a land, of descendants, that God would be his God, and that he and his descendants would be God's people. But along the way, Abraham suffers many trials. 
He suffers the trial of being physically unmatched in a land that he knew not of. He suffers the trial of his nephew Lot being captured and having to raise up an army to go and rescue him. He suffers the trial of discord in his own household, of infertility, of his wife predeceasing him, and living in tents in foreign lands. And we can see from the scripture when it speaks of him living in tents in foreign lands with Isaac and Jacob, that he lived in tents, exposed to the elements at a very advanced age. Besides this, we have the singular trial of him being commanded by God to offer up his son Isaac for sacrifice to the Lord. Reviewing Abraham's life caused me to see that uh, the concept I had of Christians enduring trials as a narrative of before, during, and after may not be the best way to look at God's purpose in testing our faith. What I mean by this is how I've often looked at the saints experiencing trials and testing of their faith is I've looked at their li- how their life was before they experienced such difficulties, how they reacted to and interacted with the Lord during such difficulties, and what change took place in their life as a result of such trials. And I don't think that's a bad way or an invalid way to look at the Scripture. But I realized when I was reading the Bible this way, I was reading it like, I was reading an article about a college football game where the score is buried in the fourth paragraph and all I want to find out is who won. So to confirm this, to confirm this suspicion, I reviewed the lives of Joseph, Moses, David, Jesus, and Paul. It seemed that none of them had this perspective on life where they mostly looked for the after of the before, during, and after of the trials that they faced. And just to make sure I wasn't off track on this, I started rereading John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is relieved from the burden on his back when he encounters the sight of the cross on page 36 of my edition of Pilgrim's Progress. And for roughly 300 or so pages after that, he runs, into, he, run, he, runs, he runs into one difficulty after another. And his only mechanism that he has for coping with such difficulty is to rely on the all-sufficient grace of God in Jesus Christ. We aren't guaranteed that hardship or difficulty or suffering is going to decrease in this life. And I realized that this was a promise that I was looking for that was not made to us in Scripture. Instead, we're guaranteed something far, far better. We're guaranteed that God is our God, that He will never leave us or forsake us, that His grace in Christ is all sufficient for us. That His Spirit will comfort us and strengthen us 
and that he will bring us to our heavenly inheritance where we will stand before him without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And this will be worth every trial, every heartache, every moment of physical pain, and all of the suffering that we experience in this life. That's God's promise to his people. The main thing that I want to bring out of the text today is that God tests our faith to show us what is in us and what is in him. God tests our faith to show us what is in us and what is in him. And first we're going to look at how God tests our faith to show us what is in us. God's word tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail to meet the test. In these verses, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians had a lot of serious problems in their church and in their faith. But he writes with confidence that through examining themselves, through testing themselves, this, this will in fact confirm that they are in the faith. Indeed, he calls his church, which is probably the most troubled church in the scripture, in the New Testament that we read about, he calls them saints. And at the, even despite the disobedience, we see that he gives them the apostolic benediction in 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So God tests our faith so that we will see what is in us. And often we don't like what we see in us. We may see pride. We may see self-sufficiency. We may see fear or inadequacy, disordered loves, perhaps an abundance of sin and a lack of faith. But God uses temptations and trials and hardships and difficulties to address these things that are lacking in our faith. Consider what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And finally, remember these words 
by the Apostle Paul that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. You see, what Scripture refers to as trials, testing, tribulation, are all tests of our faith. Abraham's faith was tested. The faith of those whom we read about in the, in the Bible was tested. And if we are saints in Christ Jesus, our faith will be tested as well. Just a few verses back in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, we're reminded that the just shall live by faith. We are reminded that we are to live a daily life of actively trusting in Jesus Christ alone and receiving him and resting on him for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. According to James, our faith is tested so that we may be made mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all things work for good in order that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. So let me summarize all this before we move on. The Bible makes it clear that our faith is tested. This doesn't mean that God is tempting us to sin or God is provoking us to sin, but through his providence, he is calling us to respond to him through the circumstances of life and faith and obedience. As he orders the details of our lives, we're often faced with difficult situations. At the time we encounter them, we see no apparent purpose behind them. And yet one of the main purposes of Hebrews chapter 11 is to show us that our fathers in the faith were also faced with such situations. They had no immediate explanation behind them. But we're, we're exhorted to respond in faith, as they did, even when circumstances suggest uh, that we might do otherwise. Yet often our faith is weak. And we find ourselves reluctant to rely upon Christ. We're often unbelieving and even rebellious in the, faith of, in the face of seeming impossibilities. When our faith is tested, we find out what is in ourselves. We begin to see in whom we really trust and in, in whom we really look to. We see what we really value, but also God shows us what is in him. God shows us. What's in him? God knows even more than we do our faithlessness, our tendency to doubt his word, our unbelief, and our rebelliousness. The point of our faith being tested is not simply to show us where our faith is lacking, but it is to show us that where our faith is lacking, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is enough that God is all that he promises to be in us, to us, in Christ Jesus. It is to wean us from trust in ourselves and delighting in the things of this world and for, from our own strategies of trying to live our lives independently of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is to give us a well-grounded assurance that we are indeed in Christ by faith and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, as we think about this today, I want us to look at the context of the verses that we read earlier. 
Prior to Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham has been held up in this, as an example of faith in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Here we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So we see that by faith, Abraham obtained the promise. Let's think about this a little bit more. As I read the book of Genesis, I see that God appears five times to Abraham in the course of his life. Some of this is reiterated for us in the passage we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. In Genesis, Moses devotes 15 chapters to the life of Abraham, which is more than he devotes to any other person in the book of Genesis. But in doing this, Moses is saying something to the audience that he is immediately writing to. That is, the generation that's about to enter into the promised land. Moses is saying that before God called you to enter into the land by faith, God called Abraham to enter into the land by faith. God promised Abraham this inheritance. And God promised Abraham that he would prevail, not because of superior force or superior numbers, but because the Lord would be with him, and the Lord is good, and the Lord keeps his promises. In spite of every possible objection that Abraham could make, Abraham entered the land by faith. He enters the land of Canaan completely reliant upon the promises of God. Abraham models the way for them, trusting in God's promises, going into the land of Canaan by faith. So this is what Moses is doing to the original people he's writing to, is he's showing Abraham is the model of their faith. Abraham entered the land by faith. You are able to do the same because you serve the same God. So Abraham prevails in accomplishing the promises of God, not because of superior numbers or resources, but because God called him. He trusted in the promises of God. He obeyed God, and God blessed him. And as we look at the book of Hebrews, this is exactly what the Hebrew Christians are being exhorted to do. Remember, these are Christians that are Jewish Christians, and they have been called out from the temple worship from the priesthood, from the sacrifices, from all the Old Testament ordinances that God is moving on from to worship Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of all the temple and the sacrificial worship. But to them, they appear small, insignificant, suffering persecution from the Jews and from the Romans, looking like more like a cult, rather than the people of God's promises. But they are called to trust in the promises of God. They are trust. They are called to trust in God's promises to leave this land of the priesthood, the sacrifices, the old covenant worship, and join with God's people, Jew and Gentile, in realizing all the promises of God in Christ Jesus, despite overwhelming odds against them. And now, 
I want to get more into the statement of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. When he was tested. This command God made to offer up Isaac seemed to contradict the promises of God. It seemed to completely do away with the means that God chose to fulfill his promise. After all, it's through Isaac that the descendants are going to come. And if there is no Isaac, how are the descendants going to come? How are these things going to happen? So God asks Abraham to give up what is most dear to him in verse 17. He asks him to give up his only son. Now why does the text say his only son? Uh, Abraham had Ishmael. He would marry after Sarah died, and he would have more sons. But this points to the uniqueness of Isaac. This is the same word that the King James Version translates in John 3.16 as the only begotten son. It points to the uniqueness of Isaac in accomplishing the purposes of God. Isaac was unique because Isaac was the son of promise. There is a sense in which Isaac is irreplaceable. So this is a test of Abraham's spiritual understanding. Now, how was Abraham able to do this? We find the answer in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. Now, the how God would do this was not apparent at the time. But Abraham looked forward in faith to the true lamb that God would provide, the lamb without spot or blemish that would take away the sin of the world, the lamb that would be put to death for our transgressions and raised up for our justification. Over the centuries of the church, uh, the church has not read this passage in isolation from the rest of the Bible. But the church has read it in context of how it foreshadows the big story of redemption. As Abraham and succeeding generations of Israelites worshiped God, they looked in faith to God to the time when the seed of Abraham would crush the head of the serpent as God had promised in Genesis chapter 3. The true lamb would be revealed by God through the law and the prophets until the day when John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This lamb was foreshadowed by the Passover lamb, of which the New Testament says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. While Abraham loved Isaac, by faith, he was able to love God more, trusting that God could raise the dead. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did, re he did receive him back. The word the ESV represents, represents as figuratively speaking is literally parable. God literally could have raised the dead. He does not literally do this in Genesis 22, but he does when he puts his own son to death. This is one of the more amazing things about this episode in Scripture is that God stays the hand of Abraham from sacrificing his son. Abraham does not have to put his son to death after doing all the preparations that that would require, but God does put his own son 
to death. He who did not spare his own son, but it gave him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? Here we see the proof of God's love for sinful, fallen humanity. God the Father makes the ultimate sacrifice, putting his own son to death for sinful, rebellious creatures that they may have life in him. In a sense, this is the bigger how question than the question that was before Abraham. How could a holy God be both just and punish sin and merciful and reconcile sinners to himself? We see throughout the rest of the scripture that Christ crucified and raised from the dead is the answer to that question. Uh, from here, there are several ways that this text speaks more directly to our experience. First is that often the present trials that we face, we face after much experience of walking with God, and they are the greatest trials that we may face. This is perhaps the most surprising insight that this passage yielded for me. After looking more carefully at the life of Abraham, it seemed that the longer he walked with God, the more severe the trials were that he faced. When he obeyed the call, to God, when he obeyed the call of God to go forth and leave Haran and go to the promised land, he was required to sacrifice his past. Obeying the Lord's call meant that he had to leave his home, his relatives, the home of his fathers, and every visible physical means of support that he had, trusting in the promises of God. Now this is very significant. Although Abraham did not have the written word of God at that time as we do, he also didn't have the encouragement of many generations of Christians to learn from. He went forth on the promises of God. But it was after many years of walking with God that Abraham faces his most severe test. He's asked to offer up his son to God. He's not only asked to give up his past, but he's asked to give up his future. To place his future and the descendants of his future into the hands of God. It seems like the popular picture that we have of the Christian life is that the longer we walk with the Lord, the easier it's supposed to be. But look at the trials of faith that people experience later in life. Terminal illness, the death of a spouse, financial reversals, outliving a child, these may happen to young believers, these may happen to unbelievers, but it seems that these are the kinds of things that happen to people who have been walking with God for a long time uh, disproportionately. And why is this? It's because when our faith is tested, it is gain for us. We're enabled by God's Spirit to see that God really is all He promises us to be to us. In Christ Jesus. While we may be privileged to enjoy a measure of health and wealth and loved ones in this life, we find that the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord is far, far greater than we thought it could ever be. The next point that I wanted to point out that's related to the first is that often the means 
by which we would suppose that God would use for his greatest glory are withheld from us. This is what it looked like he would do with Abraham. He promised that all of the covenant promises would be fulfilled through Isaac. And yet Isaac is about to be gone. He's asked to surrender the means that God would use that he promised to fulfill his purposes up to God. God ends up accomplishing his purpose, but not in the way that it appears that he would. Often for God, the closest distance between two points is not a straight line. We see this throughout the scripture. Uh, one memorable place in which the Apostle Paul summarizes his ministry is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. This wasn't a new idea for Paul. He was following the pattern of our Savior who became incarnate. The one who created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, who called this world into being, became man. And he did not assume human nature as a privileged, wealthy person, but as a baby boy born into a poor family, as one who was dependent on other human beings to meet all of his basic needs. Even as he matured, he did not become what we would call a self-made man. But we read that he had no place to lay his head. He was dependent on other human beings, even in his adulthood, for his needs to be met. Instead of commanding stones to become bread, as Satan tempted him to, when the people that he was with went hungry, he went hungry. When they slept out in the open, he slept out in the open. He was dependent on the Father for all that he had and all that he needed. And this dependence moment by moment reflects the fact that we are dependent upon one another for God to provide some of our needs. God promises to provide all of our needs through Christ Jesus, but often that provision is through people. Often that provision is through one another. So, all this weakness, all this humility, all this ordinariness was only the beginning of when our Savior would be most greatly glorified. We see this most explicitly in John chapter 12. Here we see that some Greeks have come to see Jesus, and in John chapter 12 and verse 23, we see that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then, ten verses later, Jesus explains what that means. He says, Am I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So do you see? It's in weakness. It's in suffering. It's in death. It's in the cross that our Savior most glorified the Father. He could have called down legions of angels to remove him from the cross. He could have raised up mighty armies to take over the kingdom of Israel by force and to avoid going to the cross. But it's through the cross, it's through the death of Jesus, rather than through the strength and power of Jesus, that the redemption of the world is accomplished. And that is so, one may, that, is so that no one may boast. 
So what are we to think, and how are we to act in light of these truths? Perhaps the greatest temptation that we face when we're undergoing trials is to find some way to not have to rely on the Lord. We want sudden deliverance. And this is something that God may provide for us. If it's going to be glorifying to him, and if it's going to be good for us, he may do this. But God's generally most glorified in us, as well as he was in Jesus, when we are weak. Because when we're weak, we recognize that all of the strategies and all of the substitutes that we have for escaping the difficulties of life have no power. We realize that all the attempts that we make to mask our pain are ineffective at best and harmful and worst. Because your deepest problem is not the physical pain that you suffer from. It's not the chronic illness that you may be enduring right now. It's not that you don't have enough money, whatever having enough money means. It's not that you have the wrong friends or that you only have a few friends. It's not that you have the wrong job or that you don't have a job. God sees all of these trials and many more, and he uses them for us to see his goodness and sufficiency to us in Jesus. By doing so, he often relieves us of our earthly comforts, comforts so that all we have left is the word of his promise. But the word of his promise is, I will be with you always even unto the end of the age. The word of his promise is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we have a tangible sign and seal of that today as we take the Lord's Supper together. Not only do we have the proclamation of the word that God's promises are true and God's promises are for you, we have the opportunity to eat and drink by faith to appropriate those promises that God has made to us in Christ Jesus. That his body is given for you. Not just for an indistinct mass of humanity, but his body is given for you. And his blood is shed for you. This is what we celebrate today at the Lord's table. That God is true to his promises that Christ has died, Christ will risen, and Christ will come again. And we can feed on him by faith with thanksgiving as we come to the table together. Let us pray.